listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, welcome. It's great to have you here. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. And we've been, uh, in the last couple of weeks, exploring um, a little bit of a theme. Often how it works at Red is sometimes we'll feel like there's a particular series that we need to speak into, um, and other times it's like God will start something, drop a little word, bring something out of Scripture, and before we know it, we're sort of off and running on a series, and we haven't even got a graphic for it or anything, a name for it, and that's happening at the moment. They're actually exciting series because it's actually when you're following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And a couple of weeks ago, I preached on the classic verse that often churches preach at the beginning of the year, my first sermon for the year here, um, which is from the book of Proverbs, without vision the people perish. We learnt how actually, when we translate that, that verse from the Hebrew, that it's not so much a vision like a mission statement that you're aiming for or you know, a, a, a target on the dartboard that you want to hit by the end of the year. It's actually really the unveiling of spiritual revelation that actually vision, this word hazon, is actually seeing things through a spiritual lens as God sees the world. Last week, Brit continued the theme, sharing the story of Bartimaeus, a man who Jesus encountered on the road, who Jesus prayed for and healed him of physical blindness, but also him and others of spiritual blindness. And what I want to do today is continue this theme, of asking the question, what does it look like when a church begins to operate with spiritual vision? And to ask the question, what does God want to do amongst us this year? And before we, we started the service, just in the side room, as, as people come before the service and pray, there was a real sense that also this morning we had started two new service times. And in a sense, there'd been a bunch of building that had happened around those services. I was here at 8 o'clock this morning and was carrying muffins in and there was just a hive of activity. Some of you were here. Other people were wheeling the new furniture up the hill and going backwards and forwards over the mat so that it wouldn't get water inside. Just all the energy of starting something new. But we felt that as we were praying before the service that as much as God wants to build something new with two new services. He also wants to continue to build in this 5 p.m. service, to actually keep growing, carving out spiritual space. And so there's a sense of building and excitement around what God wants to do, a vision, but we want to have that hazan, spiritual perspective, and ask God, what does He want to build here at the 5, build in us and build in you? The Bible is the story of the people of God building spiritual culture, often while surrounded by unbelief and even sometimes while experiencing unbelief themselves. And the word culture actually comes from a Latin word, cultus, which means worship. And so at the center of every culture, be it a family culture, the culture of a football club, the culture of a city, a nation, or a people, it radiates out of what they actually ultimately value and worship. A culture is all the actions, attitudes, stories, habits, focuses, and language that emanates from what we value most, where we focus our attention, what we worship. And when we understand this, we begin to see Jesus' ministry in a new light. 
Andy Crouch writes that Jesus was a cultivator of culture. He notes that Jesus had a profoundly cultural phrase for his mission, the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is actually Jesus' culture. And Jesus' ministry was deliberately creating around himself a spiritual culture. It was a counterculture, a different way of doing things to the dominant cultures that surrounded him. And Jesus charged his disciples to live out of a kingdom culture. The church is the community that God birthed to live out God's kingdom culture in the world. After Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension, he then sent out the disciples infected with his culture. And it's interesting about culture, it's less taught than it is caught. There are things about you that are a reflection of the cultural backgrounds that you have that you're not even aware of doing. Often it's not until we leave our culture that we see elements of our culture when it clashes with something. And so we as the church are called to share this kingdom culture in word, action, and attitude. That's the call on us as a body and as individual parts to build spiritual culture. That's what God wants to do in the five, what he wants to do in you, what he wants to do at Red Church. Yet when you read the history of the church, there are moments when this spiritual culture is forgotten, neglected, becomes degraded. Some of you may have grown up going to various ethnic schools that happen around Melbourne on a Saturday morning. You can drive past high schools or primary schools and there's Chinese school with Mandarin and various Chinese forms, Greek school. And the goal of these sort of schools is for migrant kids who are surrounded by a dominant culture to not forget their culture, to maintain that culture. And efforts like this have seen cultures and languages that were in danger of being forgotten revived. In the 20th century, the languages of Welsh and Hebrew at some points looked to be gone, to be disappearing. But through the efforts of people who are intent on preserving and rebuilding culture, those languages have been reborn. At the same time, other languages disappear. Once in Australia, Gaelic was spoken by many people who'd come here from Ireland. Multiple Aboriginal languages have disappeared in Australia. In South Australia, a dialect called Barossa Deutsch, a German dialect, was once widely spoken, but has all but disappeared now. But I must say that if you want to know more about Barossa Deutsch, <laughs> speak to Daniel Merton, who is passionate, and if you're from South Australia, he will inform you, as he did me, in between the services of some South Australian slang words which have their origins in Barossa Deutsch. That's a side meeting that will be happening at 9 p.m. tonight <laughs> in A5. But what this tells us is that sometimes culture needs rebuilding. And this helps us understand renewal and revival. Renewal is when the church is stirred by God to rebuild spiritual culture. And what I want to do tonight is I want to open the scriptures and look at a story of when spiritual culture had been forgotten, ignored, it had degraded, and what God did was stir the people of God to rediscover spiritual culture. So let's open the book of Haggai chapter 1 and look at this story. As you're looking at that, so Haggai is a small book, very short, couple of pages but it tells the story of a particular moment in the history of the people of God. 
Now, some of you will have been here during our Faith in Exile series. And what that series was about was actually looking at the time in the Old Testament when the people of God had been overrun by a foreign power, the Babylonians. And the way the Babylonians attempted to co-opt and destroy the culture of the people of God was to actually take them back to Babylon, the best and brightest. A whole generation of young people were taken to Babylon and they attempt to assimilate them into the culture, to destroy their culture. And the prayer of the people like Daniel, who we studied, this exile remnant of the people of God was to hold on to their culture. They prayed, and we see this in the Psalms, they desired to go back home to Jerusalem, to again be able to go to the temple which had been destroyed, and to again move in the presence of God. So where Haggai picks up the story is, the people's prayers have been answered. In 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire was defeated by the Persian Empire. A King Cyrus came in and defeated the Babylonians, and he changed everything. One of the things that he changed was, he said to the Jews that they could return home, back to their homeland. That they could actually rebuild the temple. And not only could they do this, he even gave them funds to rebuild the temple. This was the answer to their prayers. Everything that they'd hoped for, that they'd prayed for, but even better, returned home with compensation. Yet, as the people had returned home, the temple was still in ruins. So let's pick up Haggai chapter 1, begin at verse 1 in your Bibles. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. But then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Is it time for yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're never warm. You earn wages, and you put only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways, go up to the mountains, bring down the timber and build my house that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crop. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine and the olive oil and everything else the ground produces on people, on livestock and on all your labor and your hands. I want to pick it up in verse 2. Verse 2 says this. The Lord, the people had returned home. Their prayers had been answered but they're not rebuilding the temple. Verse two, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. 
the people's spiritual clocks, in a sense, were still set to Babylonian time. They were in the wrong time zone. And the fact that their spiritual clocks were set to the wrong time actually exposed a deeper problem. God's people were struggling with an issue. And it was an issue around their spiritual lives. It wasn't so much that they were falling into horrible sin. They hadn't turned into these completely corrupt people. They weren't being attacked from the outside like their previous generations had by the Babylonians. What they were facing was stagnation, an extended period of plateauing, a progress remaining halted. In simple language, they were spiritually stuck. They'd returned from exile, their deliverance had come, yet now it looked nothing like they expected. While they're in Babylon, they longed to be in their homeland, to see Jerusalem. They believed that coming home would bring blessing and flourishing. However, it simply seemed now to only deliver disappointment. They had returned home, but they had not come home. And this is where the story intersects with us. Israel had been saved. Salvation had come to them. Everything that they had prayed for had happened. Yet now that actually salvation had come, it wasn't like they expected. Stagnation had set in. Exile, whilst terrible, had sharpened the senses, built resiliency in a remnant generation. Now, however, the remnant was trapped in a bewildering bureaucratic nightmare. What was stopping the temple was not some horrible opposition by men with swords and chariots. It was actually like petty bureaucrats stopping here and stopping there. And so everything had now changed since they'd come home. Weirdly, they were living in greater comfort, but facing stagnation. Things had changed, becoming relatively normal. But sometimes normality is the biggest threat to our spiritual lives. And many of those who'd returned home, who once looked longingly towards Jerusalem while they were in exile, wishing that they could get home, now were aware and looked back with jealous eyes that there were Jews who did not come home, who actually stayed obeying the words of Jeremiah to, to seek the blessing of the city that they were in, who were doing well in Babylon in business, were back at the center of this global capital while they were out in the sticks in Jerusalem. And so eyes which once longed for Jerusalem now longed to be back at exile. In verse 9, it says this, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Israel had been saved from exile. God had intervened and brought them home. Their prayers were answered. However, they were discovering that salvation without sanctification becomes stagnation. What that means is you can be saved but you're actually saved for a purpose. And when God takes us through a process of sanctification, which is a Christian word, which means that you're saved, but you're saved to become more like God, more like Jesus. So therefore, sanctification is actually activation. And the way that they'd forgotten to become more like God is they weren't spending time in God's house, in His presence. Instead, they were building their own houses. 
And so Haggai, as a prophet, coming in and seeing this situation with spiritual insight, is charged with reconnecting the people with their true purpose. The word that comes through Haggai is what will activate the seed in the remnant that had come home. This whole process where they'd gone to Babylon was like putting a piece of pottery in a kiln, but the piece of pottery in a kiln that had been through the fire of exile was not just meant to be put in the cupboard and forgotten about, it had been made for a purpose. And so the temple, which is all about God's presence, takes on this new meaning. Bible scholars John Walton and Craig Keener write, the temple was to serve as the center point to give the former exiles a new way of understanding themselves in a changed world. Why was this important? Because ultimately the temple was the place where God's presence resided most powerfully. The center point which would give the exiles spiritual insight, hazon, orientating their lives, bringing new life, was the presence of God. The temple represented the overlap between heaven and earth. Jesus spoke of this overlap as the kingdom of God, a new order in the world. And the temple in the Old Testament in Israel pointed towards the kingdom that Jesus was going to announce. And that cookie, which some of you have already eaten, some of you which will eat afterwards, may just be a bunch of sugar and pastry. But there's a profound word of spiritual revelation on it. Come home, trust home, be home, and the kingdom is your true home. Martin Laird wrote, God is our homeland, and the homing instinct of the human being is homed on God. St. Augustine put it this way, we must fly to our beloved homeland. There the Father is, and there is everything. Israel had arrived home, but she'd yet to return to her true home in the presence of God. Some of you have come home. You've accepted Jesus. We know him, but there's still a coming home into the fullness of his presence, the deeper walk with him that we're being invited into. Thus for the people in Haggai's time, the rebuilding of the temple was essential because it would be the chief organizing principle of the people of Judah to live and find home in the overlap of heaven and earth. Yet the people were missing this. Stagnation had come. Why? Because their primary investment was in the wrong place. They were building houses, but not a spiritual home. If we could chart the lives of the people. What they were doing was investing in their own life projects represented by their houses, while what really lay in ruin, yes, it was the temple, but what that symbolizes is their life with God. In verse 4, Haggai says this, is it a time for yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, when we think of paneling, we think of wood paneling. I have wood paneling in my home. This verse is not saying it's sinful, I hope. It's not an unusual addition to a house these days. Yet at this time, paneling really meant something different. This was a highly unusual and luxurious item to have in your home. 
Panels were high-end, bespoke items, more commonly associated with temples. You see, at this time, images and art was very rare. To actually see something where something was drawn or painted or etched was really unusual. And so temple panels in all kinds of temples were actually forms of mass media, a way of communicating spiritual truths to the people. The temple in Jerusalem, now in ruins in the time of Haggai, was once paneled with glorious etchings. These etchings were representative of these images of trees, of flowers and fruit, but also these images of cherubim, these heavenly creatures, not the little Renaissance pictures of sort of chubby babies with wings. These were rather these guardians that were found in that space that surrounded God, worshipping Him. This temple panel art displayed earthly flourishing intertwined with heavenly spiritual creatures. And these panels illustrated a deep truth. Earthly flourishing is linked to heavenly flourishing. The temple represented God's presence. He dwelt there. And the temple was a microcosm, this mini model of how the world should operate with God on his throne, reigning and the world flourishing. And the temple pointed forwards to the time after Jesus' death and resurrection in which believers did not have to go to a physical temple to live in the overlap between heaven and earth, but could experience that as they lived with God life with God, and you get to live in that moment. So it doesn't look like this, this separation between the two. Coming home looks like this. Well, there's no part of life that's separate from God. Where all of our homing instincts for everything, for love, for things, for experiences, we realize that all of them actually are found only in God, and God calls us to come home. When we see this image, it reminds us of who we really are as humans, as people who can only truly understand themselves when we understand first who God is. Last week I spoke in Newcastle, and after I spoke in New South Wales, a young woman came up to me with a, a word of knowledge. And it's a word I want to bring back because I think it's relevant. I think it was given for actually us. She said that part of the thing that I would be doing over the next while would actually be speaking and reminding people who they are. And I believe that word actually is particularly for tonight. In a time which is filled with messages of telling and selling who you are, God wants you to remember who you really are, who He really is, and where home really is. And so these Eden-like images of flourishing are a reminder that we as humans, we as the church, we as the Red Church, we as 5 p.m. are actually called to flourish. And the message that Haggai brought from God to the exiles reminds us that flourishing flows from kingdom culture, and kingdom culture flows from living in God's presence. So how do we do this? How do we come home well, the first thing that Haggai is saying is he's challenging the people of God to realign our investments. 
He's saying to them, wherever you put your primary focus, whatever your worship of focus, a culture will grow out of that. That's the center foundation of a culture. And you've been actually, with one sense, your words are affirming that. You love the temple, you love God, but actually the primary focus of all your actions and your thoughts and your deeds and your investment is actually in your own life projects, your houses. Haggai 1 verse 6 says, you've planted much but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. There are examples of an investment with a poor return, of an unfruitful culture that's just simply not delivering. To be fruitful, to rebuild their culture, they first had to rebuild their spiritual culture. God was asking Israel to realign their investment, to place God first, to make him the object of our worship, thus rebuilding the culture around life with God. Change your investment, you change the culture. Jesus says this in Matthew 6 verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. This is getting the balance of our investments right, realigning according to God's will and allowing ourselves to be transformed in the process. The message version of Romans 12 verses one to two says it this way. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going out to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. That's the investment. It's giving the whole of your life, realizing that you now are investing all of you. The verse continues, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. This is saying, don't fit into other cultures which are ultimately worshiping other things. No, focus on God and you'll actually emanate culture. Don't be overtaken by culture. Be spiritual kingdom culture. It goes on. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops a well-formed maturity in you. This is so true of our moment in history. The culture at different times in different places has elements of truth in it. There are some cultures with all known not Christian still have elements of nobility and beauty and grace in them at times. But actually so much of our culture at the moment is actually just simply dragging us down into decline. And the next move of God, particularly in the next generation that he wants to raise in the church and move into leadership, is actually going to be a generation which is not trying to always bridge this gap and try and fit into the culture. It's actually going to be people who begin to create culture by placing God at the center. And when we invest in God's kingdom, place him first in all we do, our lives are radically altered for the better. Now, I believe the enemy has done a number on so many people today in a sense that we've got the Jesus card in our back pocket, we're a signed up member, but at the end of the day, we're actually convinced that following God is not that great. That by doing that, yeah, Jesus is true, we love him, but by following Jesus, we're actually going to have a substandard life, that we're not going to get all of the goodies that are on offer. And I just want to say prophetically that investing in kingdom culture 
following God as your primary investment of all your energy, putting it at the center, it's not a bummer, it is better. It is the thing which gives us life in fullness, as Jesus says in John 10.10. And when we get this, when the people of God collectively work to transform their individual lives and lives together, spiritual culture is carved out. That's what's been happening in this service over the last 18 months. There's been this carving out of a spiritual culture as people take step forward and bring Jesus increasingly to the center of their lives. Remnants rebuild spiritual culture, chasing God's presence and carving out what through Christian history are called thin places where people pray and intercede and contend for God and live out kingdom culture and it becomes a thin place between heaven and earth. How do we do this? Well, in verse 12, it says this. I'll read on. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shital, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. The posture of renewal, of carving out spiritual culture begins with obedience. That's what the people did in Haggai's time. The first thing they did is spiritual Hazan revelation was given from Haggai and the natural dance partner of spiritual revelation has to be obedience. We just simply have to do what he asks. And when we do this, this is not a bummer, this is actually the opening up of all kinds of new possibilities. And we carve out a new space, a new land, build a new culture. Let's do this this year at Red. In the 5 p.m., what if our great project is carving out a thin place of chasing after his presence with all our hearts, of focusing our investments on actually calling him to move. Haggai reminds us of something important though. In verse 13 says this, Then Haggai the Lord's messenger gave this message of the Lord to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the word of revelation has come, the people have responded with obedience, God is with them, but they need something more because the danger is they're just going to do this in their own strength. When we hear words like carving out, creating a thin place, building culture, there's a sense where we can do all of that in our own strength. So verse 14 is so absolutely key. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shital, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. The remnant spirit needs stirring up. And what happens then? Then they came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. We need to pray at a moment where our posture is one of pressing into renewal, of crying out for God to move in this time, of building spiritual culture at red, of carving out a thin place here at the five o'clock, of making the primary investment in your life into God's kingdom culture, we need to pray that the Spirit will stir up our spirits. We need stirring up, stirring up out of stagnation. And sometimes life is a long obedience 
in the single direction. Discipleship sometimes is something which we have to endure and walk out. But also, the reason that we finish our services with a chance for God to respond is that God can change a life in a moment. Moments are what give birth to movements. We can't make the moment happen, but we can partner with God to steward the moment into a movement. I'm reminded before this service, as we prayed in the side room, of a story that comes to us from the Hebridean revival in the north of Scotland. I've spoken about it before, but one particular story came to mind, which was that the revival had taken off in the mid-century in Scotland, the last, I think, great revival of the 20th century in the UK. And it spread everywhere except one particular village. And Duncan Campbell, who was the minister, who'd actually been going and preaching, and it was just this revival following him, he went to this one village where it just was not moving. And in this village, they sat and they prayed into the night, a group of elders from the local church, and one elder stood forward and actually cried out to God, and God said, God, your honor is at stake here. We're asking you, you've moved everywhere else, move here. And it was at that moment, almost of challenge to God, when actually they asked for the Holy Spirit to come, that that stirring up happened. The vineyard movement that came out of the ministry of John Wimber, it broke at a moment when a bunch of burnt out young adults in Southern California were gathering together. Their churches had sort of fallen apart and getting to strange places. And one day, a young guy got up the front and simply prayed the words, Come, Holy Spirit. And at that moment, people were stirred up. We need a moment. We need stirring up out of our stagnation. If you are someone who is, yes, I've been saved, I know Jesus, but it's disappointment. You've come back from exile of unbelief, but there's a sense where your faith is plateaued. This is a moment where God wants to stir you up. It's time to change your investments. It's actually time to cry out for God to move. Let's pray for such a moment now. Let's stand. God, we just want to ask your spirit to come. We recognize that we need stirring up. We recognize and confess that too often we have been about the business of building our own houses, our own life projects, while your presence, your house is laid in ruins. We confess that our primary investments have been focused on other things, that we have been overrun by cultures around us who are at the center of worshiping other things. But Jesus, at this moment, we prophetically want to stand and make a declaration that we want to put you first. We are not satisfied with your house remaining in ruins. We are not satisfied with Christian life that simply stagnates. We are not satisfied through being in exile and not being home. God, bring us home. God, remind us 
who we are. And give us your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Show us who we are, who you are. And that coming home is so much better. Father, build spiritual culture here in this 5 p.m. service. Carve out a thin place where people come in and feel the presence of God so palpably. Holy Spirit, come.